IntelliKey Leadership Stories with Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Connect with us on LinkedIn or visit our website, pureintellikey.com. Here's your host, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Welcome back, everybody, to IntelliKey Leadership Stories. Kirsten, we've just had so many great guests talking about this idea of elevating the purpose of their organizations and of their own personal lives. We have, Mark. We've had such good guests and really good conversations, even if we don't necessarily agree with it, right? Those really important discordant conversations with, because those are the opportunities to continue to elevate our own thinking and thought and I know you and I um, continue even off the, you know, recording studio conversing about how important these dialogues are. And as we're here, I'd be curious to ask you, how do you see those discordant conversations going, right? Those thought-boking conversations for our well, IntelliKey leadership stories. Absolutely. I, I think that the point of uh, maybe a crucial conversation might appear to be conflict, it might appear to be friction, but just as we have been espousing a more conscious approach, it's like, well, let's embrace, well, somebody else has a point of view or somebody else saw it a little bit different than us and be more curious about their point of view and maybe where it came from rather than being confrontational about it. Absolutely. Well said. I love that, right? And that's that engagement of curiosity, which is why we have this podcast, right? To remain curious and dive deeper into the study of IntelliKey leadership and what it means. Yeah. And I think it's that backdrop of curiosity and certainly inquisitiveness that we want to welcome our guests into the program today. Today, we have Dr. Christopher Driscoll. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Mark, Kirsten, thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. And this is one of those where, you know, we, we are going to get into some deep thoughts today. Uh, we might also have a little fun. Who knows? Uh, I, Kirsten, we've been known to do both, haven't we? We've, we do both all yeah. the time. <laughs> I mean, what's the point of deep thought if you can't laugh along the way, right? There you go. So if, <laughs> if you think we're right in the middle of a deep thought and then you have a chuckle, then that's, you've, you've come to the right podcast. Well, uh, Chris is an assistant professor of religious studies at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. Uh, he's been a scholar of race, religion, and culture, and both the historical and the contemporary studies of religious philosophy, theological thought, but also how the impact of race, especially maybe in a white-dominated uh, country like ours, has affected this culture, but then combines a lot of this religious thought with uh, trends in hip-hop, which I cannot wait to see where that overlap takes us. Chris, just so glad to be talking with you today. Like I said, it's great to be here. Thank you for the introduction. Yeah. Well, as also a backdrop, I'll add the footnote at the beginning. Uh, Chris and I went to the same high school. Now, uh, 25 years apart, so <laughs> at least we know where the building is, right, Chris? That's right. That's right. We uh, both belong to the city of Bird, C.E. Bird. C.E. Yeah. Bird High School. Well, we, we've certainly taken different paths. Well, let's start there, Chris. I think we're very curious when we think of sort of race, religion, and culture and the study of all that. But in our podcast, we think of this word IntelliKey as the pursuit of a soul's potential. And what is it about 
I guess, our embracing religion and theology that, you know, makes us search for a higher meaning? And is that all part of that pursuit? It's certainly part of that pursuit as far as uh, I'm, I'm concerned. I think a bit of C.E. Bird is a good backstory or, or kind of starting point for thinking about how I come at the work that I do, which really is thinking in terms of the realization of potential. So at religion, theology, uh, church, I grew up in this space in uh, Louisiana, the, the deep south, it's the Bible Belt. And I grew up in a church space that was predominantly white. It was almost exclusively white. We had, uh, by my estimation, I think, one uh, black woman who would attend pretty regularly, but otherwise it was uh, an all white affair on Sundays. Comparing that to the actual high school experience Monday through Friday, where it was more or less 50% white, 50% black, like lots of modest sized towns in the South. And through that connection, I guess, as well as just pop culture in general, I grew up with kind of finding my footing in two different places in culture. One was in this church space where God and Jesus Christ meant all of this important stuff, meant promise and potential. But then I also, like when I wasn't at church, found value in rap music. And I found value in uh, being able to share the experiences of rap music across racial divides in, in school in, in ways that otherwise kids weren't really kind of allowed to do that. Like, of course, integration has occurred in a lot of places, but that doesn't mean that necessarily it's uh, deemed appropriate or comfortable for folks to be like engaging and really forging real relationships across uh, different lines of, of difference, social difference, in this case, race. And so, um, as I got to college, I realized that there were folks who were interested to explore these um, questions in a more substantive kind of way. What had always been a tension in my own kind of sensibility, my own spiritual formation, if you will, between on the one hand, um, being told what is right and wrong and how to act and how to think from an all white space over and against uh, a hip hop sensibility that's marked by telling the truth. That truth is not always pretty. It's not always easy to hear, but something about rappers were able to tell the truth. They were telling the truth about um, the importance of our bodies and what we do with our bodies. They were telling the truth in terms of a history and an ongoing um, problem with white supremacy and police brutality and things like that in a way that my pastor quite literally would not ever talk about politics. And this just kind of struck me. I wasn't thinking of it as good or bad. It was just weird to me that the, the kind of synergy of concerns that was expressed in hip hop culture wasn't happening. And it, at least in my opinion, it wasn't happening in the place where I thought that it should probably happen more organically than anywhere else. And so as I got to college, I uh, found religious studies and religious studies gave me a way to uh, think in a rigorous and ongoing fashion about how that discrepancy, if you will, how it emerged. And um, I guess I'll, I'll stop there. I could say more about uh, that history or, or what have you, but that's kind of like where my, uh, my personal story connects me to the, the stuff that I study these days. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you're an author of a number of uh, books and publications and an editor of several uh, publications. Yeah, this idea of white lies, race, 
and Uncertainty in the Twilight of American Religion is one of your publications. But uh, to pick up on what you're talking about, Breaking Bread and Breaking Beats, Churches and the Hip Hop uh, Guide to These Key Issues. It, it's just such an interesting overlap, but you're really talking about life, you know? And in, in church, maybe we're talking about a religious life, but, but in hip hop or in music or in high school or, you know, in, in life in general, uh, this seems to be separated uh, rather than incorporated. Yeah, I think the idea of white lies, which it came to be the title of my first monograph, uh, which had been my dissertation project as well, uh, is really a use for me. It's a useful frame for thinking about so many spaces where folks are given information that may not necessarily be faulty, but it prevents people from connecting uh, with one another. Like a white lie ends up a useful kind of play on the folks who I was talking about in that book. So I'm studying white people. My, eventually, I would go to work with uh, a prominent African-American theologian and scholar of religion. His name's Anthony Penn, and he has a program for the study of African-American religion. And I was interested in Black religion. It had been kind of an outgrowth of my interest in hip-hop and how to study hip-hop. But when I got there, I realized that what I had to do was apply the, the kind of insights offered from what we call now the turn to uh, context or social context. So across the 1960s and into the 70s, we see in, the, the, in higher education, we see women's voices come online in a more prominent way. We see black voices come online in a more prominent way, in part because of hard fought battles at local and, and broader levels. And so what that did in that moment was kind of forcefully insert a social identity into the sum total of what we study. So no longer was there just knowledge. We would have to contend with uh, what has been thought of as knowledge as such. But then how does the perspective, the interpretation of Black folks or of women, how does that impact or augment what we've always assumed to be just knowledge. And so when I got to my program, I realized that I had to find a way to do some version of the same thing. I could certainly just keep studying black culture or uh, hip hop culture in a way that was detached from who it was that I am personally, right? just being a white boy from the South. But that wasn't really what was so innovative about those traditions. Feminism arises and ends up impacting things in the way that it does, not simply because women have good ideas too. That's, that's true, of course. And so it's important for, for all of us to be at the same table, but it was the specific kind of intervention of a different interpretive posture towards the material that was so useful. And so I thought rather than study black culture, I thought, what would it look like to, to use race as a way to think about normative or dominant culture. So white lies ends up on the one hand who I study, like I study white people, white in that project, I study uh, white religious folks. It also is kind of my way of thinking about what a similar kind of intervention, a similar kind of shift in our point of view, what it would offer to the study of religion. And so to, that's kind of a long way of getting to the bigger point, which is that all of us, at least within the West, have found ourselves uh, being told versions of events that probably don't connect or correspond with 
who it is that we understand ourselves to be at a, at a deeper level, right? Thinking of, again about this notion of actualization of potential at a soul or a really deep level, whether that means we have listened to certain versions of Christian traditions that have told us that we are sinners who are damned until we come to some sort of uh, specific understanding of how a particular person came here and saved us and died on the cross for the sake of all of that. If we're not listening to the right, or if we're not propagating that right version of events, then we're doing it wrong somehow. Well, my work at a most fundamental level is all about finding those places where we get told that we need to do this or that. And in doing so, it kind of creates a rules of engagement for us. So if we want to have a good life, if we, and I mean this real literally, if we look at the history of the, the West and particularly the United States, if you wanted to be in any kind of frontier town, Boise, for instance, if you wanted to make it in the economic theater in Boise, historically, you had to go to church. It also mattered what denomination you went to. We would not trust you if, you're, if you weren't going to church on Sunday mornings. And so it, religion became a kind of shorthand way of pushing, saving ourselves off from the anxieties that just come with being in relationship with one another. So rather than religion being this place where all of us can come together and connect at a more deeper level, it ended up doing the exact opposite. And that probably the most salient place where we can see that it, it had that effect is with race. So it's not that I just want to pick on white people. It's more so that in my work, it, there's this long-standing pattern that gets shown where essentially in this concern to have a connection to a higher power or to connect with one another, it, there are moments when essentially a, a new kind of God or an idol gets created with race or whiteness being that idol. And so it becomes this thing that prevents us from not only forging uh, relationships across race but even within race so that like white folks end up in constant competition with other white folks as well all in an effort to try and be as far away as they can from feelings of discomfort feelings of uncertainty that are just part of what it means to be in relationship with other people i mean like people are wonderful but people are we're complicated you know uh, so that's that's what indeed. i mean by white lie mm-hmm hmm. So I have um, a, a couple questions for you, but they all dovetail to the same place. So, you know, as a female, you can imagine the hair on my neck goes up when I hear the word religion, because since the beginning of time, it across the world, not just in Western society, women have had no place in authority in religion. And it doesn't matter where in the world you stand, right? So I hear religion, I hear dominance and control and appeasement, right? Those are, and domestication, right? Mm -hmm. Women have been fully domesticated by the use of religion um, to the means of men and it doesn't matter what color, right? Mm -hmm. You can answer any color or religion, but you used words such as interpretive, innovative, shift, having a voice, communication, Again, those are not inherent words that I understand religion to occur, structured religion, right? Because to your point, they're incredibly, and I think of interpretive, I think of like really beautiful tribal African-American dance or Latin dance where there's really an interpret, interpretive component that's a free expression, right? Mm -hmm. So 
my question to you is how do you take what you just spoke to and actually innovate and elevate from where we are, which is current confusion Mm -hmm. of ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Into a platform where this interpretive, beautiful, creative expression gives rise to eliminating domination, equanimity, unity, everything you're speaking to. That's such a wonderful question. And I completely co-sign on how your characterization of religion's role uh, historically as it concerns women's oppression. Um, I couldn't agree more, at least with respect to Western uh, monotheism, for sure. So whether that's some expressions of uh, Judaism or Islam or Christianity, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, to think that women still uh, have a um, subordinate place in so many contemporary Christian religion, Christian denominations or traditions today is telling. It's absolutely telling. But how to kind of respond to that and, and similar challenges, I do it in a couple of ways. One, religion ends up not so much in my work, the constant subject of my work, the data necessarily, but it ends up, it offers a way of addressing social identity more generally. So in this just as a basic parallel example. So what God is, is functionally, like the way that it comes to matter as an idea in the social world is identical to our social identities. So what a gender is, for instance, the way that we all know what a gender is and what specific genders are supposed to be and look like and act like, et cetera, all of those are social facts. That's what uh, Emil Durkheim would say. They're a social fact. They're real to the extent we agree that they're real, but they're not, in, they're not realer in an empirical or a scientific way. They don't actually correspond to anything out there in the world. They're only real because we believe to be real and agree that they're real. God is kind of like the first of those social identities. It's the oldest going all the way back in history so that I use religion as a way of thinking about social identity more generally. But the the more important point, I guess, response to your question is that in my work and in my classes, especially, I try and respond to the confusion. I try and respond and offer students and my readers a way of not, uh, not sinking underneath the 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 tides of contemporary social chaos. There are a lot of shifts happening in society right now that are being brought about by any number of things, some good, some bad, and others are kind of arbitrary. But my students, and I know lots and lots and lots of readers, feel overwhelmed with how to respond to, call it the weight of history, how to respond to the combination of say who white people have been alongside a a realistic assessment like white people aren't who we have been historically either. So how do we do right by everyone's concerns? And there are ways to, I think uh, my work tries to give information that will simultaneously assuage a reader or my students anxieties about saying or doing the wrong thing for instance while at the same time giving them the information that will help them to meet everyone else where they are. And so, I mean, like the pushes and the changes that are happening with respect to 
you say the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the prominent attention that issues of racism and anti-Blackness are receiving in lots of different spaces in the popular imagination are, are a welcome change. It's, it's been a long time coming in a lot of ways and it ought not stop anytime soon. However, that doesn't mean though that there aren't people who are gonna feel as if they're being inundated with a particular political posture in just pop culture in general in a way that is different from how they've been able to kind of escape those issues historically. So what I try and do is meet everyone where they are and have an honest conversation that doesn't put anyone, anyone's concerns ahead of another person's concerns, but tries to um, be attentive to what I call the, the existential concerns that everyone has. I mean, these are human issues. Race is not real. Gender also is not real in the way that we, we would assume it is real because of the way that we fight over these things. Mm -hmm. we, but it, it actually isn't real but you can't really get to that space of moving past or moving or or being inclusive if you're not having honest conversations and i feel like those are increasingly difficult to to hold these days for yeah. lots of reasons well i appreciate that point of view well guests uh, our uh, listeners our guest is dr chris driscoll and i think uh chris i'd like to pivot a little bit to pick up on maybe your students' point of view, and think now about the academic and the classroom setting. You know, what, what kind of students decide they wanna study these issues? You know, and is it for a pure academic uh, purpose? You know, or is it that their search, you know, their exploration personally has led them to this? It's a both and kind of thing. So I teach classes that on the one hand, take well in in every case my classes are weird they're weird in the sense that that i i try and foster unlikely conversations so in some classes i have one class a really popular class. I, I can't imagine anybody would call this discussion <laughs> weird uh anybody who's still with us after the first 10 minutes uh is is in that definition i'm pretty sure right yeah fair enough, fair enough. as as we all are right now that's a good point um <laughs> So one of my classes is called Is God Dead, where I turn to the, this conversation in the 1960s as to whether or not religion still mattered for con the contemporary American context. And I use it as a way of introducing this notion of an existential lie. Like, in, in what ways are we telling ourselves stories to make ourselves feel better? And in what ways are this, those stories that we tell leaving other people's voices or perspectives out and how can we start to respond to that another class though is kind of like um in some ways the exact opposite of that so i had to teach a class right now i'm teaching it called religion and the paranormal where we explore kind of like the horizons of knowledge production and knowledge formation like what are the things that we know are factual but uh, if we move too close to them, we might fall off the edge of what we can know with any kind of certainty. And so I, in that way, I use religion in one class to kind of uh, address social issues. And then in another case, I use it as an entry point into really thinking about expansive possibilities for, for life and for, for interacting with one another. And that, and that for me, really happens in thinking about the paranormal telepathy for instance what are all of the ways that we communicate without speaking and there's a whole lot of 
intersubjective communication that goes on in a way that looks, if we really look at it closely, it looks like telepathy. It looks like we have these superpowers that we don't usually feel like we have. We can convey so much information uh, to one another and back again without, without opening our mouths at all. And um, I think that's, that's a really fun set of ideas to explore there as well. Cool. You also mentioned you had this class on Kendrick Lamar and uh, the, the meaning and the translation and as the word we've used interpretation of how hip hop influences or derives some of these ideas. Yes, yes, indeed. Thanks for uh, jogging my memory on that point. Uh, the classes has uh, one of the highest enrollments at the university in any given iteration of the class. There are between 80 and 100 students and they absolutely love to come to a class where the stuff that matters to them out in pop culture anyway is treated as relevant for their educations. And so hip hop, that, this is not really any different from what I've done with hip hop, other hip hop artists and hip hop in general. You mentioned the Breaking Bread, Breaking Beats book that I co-wrote with a bunch of my colleagues because hip hop has now, it's been the single most significant cultural product to emerge from the United States. It has maybe since the, uh, I, don't, I don't even know. It, the last two generations though, have been significantly impacted in how they are approaching the world. And I think it has a lot to do with hip hop culture. There was some kind of practically magical formula that artists and creators were able to put together in a way that allowed hip hop artists, largely black and brown artists, but not exclusively, to tell their story, to, to speak their, their truth in a way that could be realistic, but somehow uh, accessible to a wide audience. And that's really the kind of education that I think is most useful as well, just in general, like education ought to be as democratic as possible and so hip hop, Kendrick Lamar specifically, but hip hop in general offers a way of opening up students to explore classic concerns in terms of like how to critically think, how to apply reasoning skills and logical skills to any given kind of circumstance. And, and then at the end of the day, all of my classes are really about interpretation. They're all about, so I'm literally trained as what they call a hermeneutician as in like the god Hermes, as in like the, the god responsible for like commerce and trade and like the diff different kinds of people coming together in, in a particular space and cultivating ways of sharing ideas across geographic differences or racial or gender differences, economic differences as well. And so ultimately I, I try, I use religion and race and culture in, in my classes in order to try and foster opportunities for uh, connecting. I keep, I keep saying that, connecting. I, technically, I refer to it as intersubjective communication. Who am I at a most fundamental level? Well, if we really pull back the layers of the assumptions connected to who I am, we realize that I am not really anything if I am not in constant kind of back and forth engagement with other people. Who I am right now is literally being made by this engagement between the three of us. And that's something that 
we don't tend to think about in a day-to-day -day kind of way, but we also, the history of Western ideas hasn't really given us adequate tools for taking that kind of connectedness as seriously as I think lots and lots of people these days are realizing. Like we're, we, are, we are more special and more connected than we've really ever been told, than our history tells us. And so that's kind of what I ultimately hope my work does mm -hmm. to help tell that story. So a question, you said something, you said a couple of things that have really sparked um, some questions for me. So um, I think the, the exact term was using education as a democratic process. I, again, this is perception, but I don't necessarily see Western education as a democratic process, right? History books in the US have eliminated a lot of truth about what we have done. And you also use the term expansive possibilities for life, right? And I've often heard some scientists such as Bruce Lipton and others speak about within their own scientific community, they actually want lids on how far you can go with studying. This is the, you know, the, it, it seems counterintuitive, but the scientific community really doesn't want their information challenged. They want to study their idea to prove it right rather than to prove it wrong, which gives us the opportunity for expansive, you know, possibilities of life, right? Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, do you see your academic peers engaging in this education as a democracy, right? And evolving it to fit the relevancy of the students, right? And where are we, like how far off are we from really evolving to what you're speaking to? Mm -hmm. that's, that's a dangerous question, but I, I, could, I can't help but agree with you in, in so many ways. In general, the sciences, the, I'm more squarely housed in the humanities, but the humanities as well are, are rather conservative spaces. There comes a point when youthful kind of brash curiosity turns into protectionism and it turns into oh my reputation is connected to this particular set of ideas and as a result I'm going to start acting more as a gatekeeper than as an innovator I couldn't agree more with that how to challenge that is is really difficult I hope that my work does it on different kind of battle fronts so to speak although I don't, I don't really love that imagery but nevertheless I mean, like, so on the front of race, on the front of gender, in terms of increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think I, I'm trying to ensure that my field is attentive to uh, increasingly democratic possibilities. On the other hand, I'm all, this connects to the paranormal class that I teach, probably more than any of the other classes, is we are... Uh, in the study of religion, we are told that there is the doing of religion, and then there is the study of religion. And there's this very, very, very powerfully guarded distinction there. And so that if you, if you do theology, then you're doing religion, but you're not being a good academic scholar of religion. You cannot practice religion as well as study religion. There's this basic divide. And, and one of the books that uh, I co-wrote, uh, Method as Identity, tries to think innovatively about what it would look like to challenge that assumption. So not necessarily because 
doing religion is an important way of studying religion, but more because we are inextricably connected to who it is that we've been. And so to ask someone to hold at bay their religious beliefs so that they can study this or that thing is, um, is more or less impossible. I mean, it's simply impossible. And so it leads to inadequate findings because the observer is always making an impact on the thing observed. So I just frame that in terms of the social world, but it also matters at like literally even a quantum level, like the, the observer paradox in quantum physics. These are not different issues, me talking about social difference and then me talking about like the superposition of an electron. We have been sold a particular version of events, like the, the world as we've been given it or, or talked to about it in education has told us that there is a finite world and that you can't ask questions for fear of being wrong. That's kind of how education has happened. So to connect back to your point, scholars these days are, are human and they're worried about their reputations. They're worried about being proven wrong. And yeah, I go back in my classes to a, a classic American pragmatist, William James, who says there's really two different ways you can come at knowledge production as a scholar. You can courageously kind of lean in the direction of finding new information, making new knowledge at the expense of every so often or even often being proven wrong in some of your observations, but you'd be the one to push the horizons open. Or you can be a gatekeeper who is hell-bent on ensuring that we're never wrong. In that, there's a certain cost, though, that comes with such a preoccupation with never being wrong. It leads to stasis. It leads to atrophy. It prevents us from growing in the ways that you guys seem so keen to explore. We do want to keep that uh, exploration, absolutely. Well, Chris, it's a terrific conversation that we're having. I'm mindful of your time. And I'm also thinking about uh, leadership, you know, in our podcast, as we think about the future generations, uh, perhaps in your classrooms. But uh, what, what do you see on the horizon for these new leaders that are studying and, as you said, uh, studying versus doing or trying to do both? You know, what are these new leaders looking forward to? I think uh, new leaders, thinking about my students as leaders taking roles in, in uh, economic spheres, political spheres, and things like that. They're, we're leaving them like maybe our parents left us with more challenges than opportunities. They're gonna be faced with a whole lot of problems that they really don't connect to existentially. Like so many of the social issues that I've been talking about so much in this, uh, our, our conversation. Young people do not think about these issues in the same way that even my generation, the one like immediately before them thought. However, that doesn't mean that the, those leaders aren't gonna end up uh, kind of weighed down by having to deal with the, the gritty realities that people face and how, the, how these issues inflict harm on, on people still. So they're, they're realistic while they're also, I think they're offering us new possibilities for moving past some of these issues in a way that is really, really thoughtful. I can't help but go back to uh, the leadership style of the Black Lives Matter movement. These are young people, uh, LGBT oriented and organized folk 
women of color largely who are thinking really, really innovatively about what leadership looks like. It's, it's democratized in the sense that there's no charismatic single figure at the center any longer. Uh, and that, that's on purpose for them. And I think that, to me, that is uh, at times kind of like feels complicated. If I want to go to, I don't know, like a particular group and, and ask them questions, whether I'm a journalist or a politician or a scholar, I feel like I want a, a, a figurehead in order to like talk to and to think with. And they're not taking for granted that kind of arrangement anymore. And I think that speaks to innovation. It does. And I mean, we're seeing the proof is in the pudding as well. Lots of lots of pressure being put on different industries, different uh, institutions, and it's it's moving in the direction of inclusiveness. And it's also doing it in a way that doesn't look like the way that similar things were happening in the 1950s and 1960s. And that that to me, I think, speaks to the power of hip hop culture as well. And it it speaks to um, the imaginations of young people. And, and I think we're all ultimately going to benefit from those imaginations. So I, I hope to be part of, I hope all of us are able to just help foster imagination among young people while at the same time, like also introducing them to, to the history that doesn't get taught in schools, to the, to the history that is such an important component of where all of our culture comes from, but that doesn't really get easily discussed in, in classroom spaces usually. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. So Chris, I just want to say, I know for me, I'm super excited about everything you said, especially the last part. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Right. Like it's time to have inclusivity and equanimity and equality. Um, and one last thought, I know where I want to be cognizant of time, um, but something was triggered inside of my head and you've said it a couple of times. So I just want to integrate it quickly into the sure. conversation. You know, this notion of metaphysics, right? Telepathy, mm -hmm. the paranormal, the other side, however that looks. And recently in the last few days, I've been listening in on a lot of doctors that um, are really engaged in this neuroplasticity. I can't mm -hmm. say the word well. And the place that they are unwilling to go to is anything beyond mindfulness. It's like, that's the safe word, right? Like that's the safe word. Don't go past that idea because we may not sound like the doctors in the room, right? Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is even pushing the edge of innovation in where, because what they're talking about is brilliant, but if you're not integrating the spirit and the soul, all aspects of a person, even potentially the paranormal, you're missing almost the whole piece because that's the quantum, right? Mm -hmm. That you mm -hmm. spoke to. Mm -hmm. So I, I know we want to wrap up and, and not go too far, but what is, what is lost if we don't integrate that conversation at risk? Because it's an at risk for people who are thrive on credibility. I, right? so, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a wonderful question. I think I can bring it all the way back to the initial point about a white lie. We're being lied to and we're lying to ourselves to the extent that we close ourselves off from attention to whatever about us is out there dangling in front, bringing us in that direction. However we frame that as soul, as spirit, as source, even how, how we do that is 
kind of open-ended, but your, the, your characterization of how folks have denied that reality is, is more pertinent. I don't so much care what a person calls that or what uh, a prominent scholar who gets talked about a lot in my field is Rudolf Otto. He refers to it as the numinous, the numinous being this kind of not God thing, but this kind of spiritual reality that brings us into some sort of experience that he calls the mysterium tremendum at fascinans. It's there's a mysterious quality and an awe-inspiring quality to that experience that's also scary at times. And I think history, I think, shows that people have been so more afraid than they are curious to to explore that. But the, for me, that I could say a lot more about that. I love this material, but the buck for me stops on the point of health. If a scientist or especially if a doctor who's taken a Hippocratic oath is more concerned about epistemological certainty than they are with the health of their patients, they're doing their, their job wrong, period. And so whether or not we agree to say this is an imaginative act that ensures or provides an opportunity for health or whether we want to uh, admit that there is a numinous out there, that source is real, or that unification consciousness is, is a reality that we could achieve at some point. All of those kind of spiritual formations move, for me, they move in the direction of increasing the possibilities for healthy living, period. And so however that needs to happen, I think that needs to be what's prioritized. But I think far too many Western doctors and scientists, they're, they're moving in the direction that William James is saying is cowardice. They're so concerned about being wrong that, they're no, that many of them are no longer maybe ever concerned about the actual health of their patients. There's a lot of different ways to be healthy. If you have a tumor, it might need to be cut out. But at the same time, there are lots of different ways we can think about what a tumor is on a life and and a lot of uh, like a lot of folks are suffering from a lot of things that could be helped their lives could be made much better if we would simply be attentive to the whole person and to the extent we're closing ourselves off from all of that stuff just as a matter of course we're western scientists we're western doctors we don't listen to any of that kind of stuff then we're we're hamstringing ourselves and so I hope that my work helps push those folks in the direction where they'll be more comfortable exploring healing modalities and spiritual formations, both new and old. It's an admirable goal, admirable pursuit for sure. I mean, it's necessary, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it really yeah. is. It really is. Well, Kirsten, what a fantastic uh, discussion. Thanks for uh, being part of this uh, with me. Uh, and Chris, thanks for coming on the program. Kirsten, I think about, I mean, if, if somebody has listened to this and doesn't find a provocative topic, question, point of view, uh, you know, a, a new thought every minute of this program, they're not really listening. <laughs> and you, you provide an opportunity for us to continue a conversation like this on a regular basis. I wondered if you could tell us about your Soul Tea program. Yeah, sure. Thank you. And, you know, I just I, I want to thank the opportunity to even be in this dialogue 
right? Because it does take the dialogue to it. You know, um, Dr. Driscoll has pointed to, right? We have to stay in communication. We have to stay in connection. And so I have a, you know, a peer-to-peer -peer discussion that we have every two weeks. Um, and again, to Dr. Driscoll's point, it's peer-to-peer. -peer. And we are speaking on topics that are relevant to the soul. So um, Soul Tea and Conversations is a peer-to-peer -peer dialogue on matters that pertain to the soul and the evolution of the soul and the self. And it's every two weeks and can be found on my website, www.pureintelligy.com. Oh, what a terrific program. Chris, uh, thanks for being with us. Our guest has been Dr. Christopher Driscoll. He's an assistant professor of religion studies at Lehigh University. He explores and studies race, religion, and culture. He's the author of a couple of great publications, White Lies, and uh, he edited a book called Breaking Bread and Breaking Beats, Churches and Hip Hop. Chris, can't thank you enough for being on the show with us. Thank you so much. And if anyone wants more information, ChristopherDriscollPhD.com is where they can find me. So thank well, you all for having me. I know listeners, you're going to want to check that website out. Lots of good resources, blogs, uh, books, and other ideas to explore. And be sure to come back for our next episode, where here on this podcast, we explore IntelliKey, the pursuit and advancement of your full soul's potential, your human potential and leadership, how we can take a role in leading, not just following, uh, certainly not being that person that holds back ideas, but rather promotes innovation and promotes ideas and stories. We feel like uh, Kirsten and I want to bring you the stories and the real life experiences of people who are doing the work, not just talking about the work, but actually in the trenches, doing the studying, doing the writing, doing the improvements. And that's what we're all about here on the podcast. Kirsten, thanks again. I'm Mark Stenson for IntelliKey Leadership Stories, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many more. On behalf of your hosts, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson, thanks for listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories. If you like IntelliKey Leadership Stories, I want to tell you about another podcast I host called Unlocking Your World of Creativity. Each episode features an expert from somewhere around the globe that tells us about how they get inspired, how they organize their ideas, and how they gain the confidence and connections to get their work out into the world. From singer-songwriters to entrepreneurs, on topics like data analytics to hotel management, we talk to experts from Milan and Oslo, Buenos Aires and Los Angeles, all over the globe to bring you the best ideas and inspiring your creative thinking. You can find Unlocking Your World of Creativity wherever you listen to podcasts.